Let's just bow and pray before we open up God's Word. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for, I, I thank you for the women in our church. And just, they're such um, strong women of faith. They're, they're hardworking and they take care of a lot of kids. And often they're not appreciated. We just want to say thank you. Father, I also just ask as we open up your word, I just pray it will make sense, first of all. And I pray that um, this message will be a blessing. Help us to be better. Help us to be different, more faithful to you because of your word. We love you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mac, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. You doing well? Good to see you. Good to see you. I will never forget, never, I will never forget, it was a, oh, about the middle of February, a long time ago, I was driving from Chicago to Kentucky, I was invited to be in a wedding, but what I won't forget about it, not only was it a stormy, blizzardy type of weekend, but I was able to drive there with this brown-eyed, brown-haired beauty that I've been praying for for a long time. I will never forget it because we were driving through highways that were encased in blizzards, and I was still going 70 miles an hour while everybody else was going off the side of the road. I can remember one time I went over this bridge, and I did two 360s because it was icy. It went to the berm a little bit. I just jumped out, pushed the car back on the road, and kept going because I w it was one of those moments that you just, you know what I'm talking about? I don't know how to explain it, but it was amazing. I will never forget, it was a Monday about 10 o'clock in the morning, I put on third day worship CD, my wife was out doing errands, and this is the same lady that has long brown hair and brown eyes, by the way, she's out doing errands, but what I did is I put on some third day worship CD while I was holding my two month old baby girl, my first one, and I can remember one song that was about Oh Praise Him, and I just It's one of those moments, one of those mornings that you just, I'll never forget it. I don't know how to explain it, but I'll just never forget it. I'll never forget about six, seven months ago when we were, my wife and I were driving in a tour bus. It's about two in the afternoon. Everybody was kind of sleepy on this tour bus, and I was just looking out the window watching the countryside, and all of a sudden a guy got on the loudspeaker, and he said, if you look to your left, look about five miles to your left, you'll notice, looks like it goes down, and then there's a blue body of water. That, my friends, is the Sea of Galilee. I will never forget that. That moment was just what people in our common vernacular say is that's a wow moment. Actually, Abraham Maslow would call it a peak experience of life. Poets call it the sublime beauty. When emotions, tastes, insights, awareness, they are all excited at the same time, and you just cannot explain the wonder. I'm sure you've had times like that. I know some of, I know a lot of guys can tell me about times like that when they got their first buck. They jumped out of the tree, took a rope, jumped on top of them, caught them. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know ladies can tell me about the first time they were walking and they saw their husband as they walked down the aisle. I mean, those moments of the sublime, you just cannot explain it. Do you think God ever has times like that? 
Whereas he's looking down on us. He's just so overwhelmed that it just catches his attention. It draws him in. He's, a, he's, he's drawn to us because of something somebody did or some action somebody took that he's just in awe. Some people, theologians, will say, no, God's dispassionate. He is transcendent. He's above us, so he doesn't enter into the same kind of emotions as we do. Other theologians will say, however, he's eminent. That means he does feel things. That's why he gets angry sometimes in Scripture. Sometimes in Scripture it says he's sorry that he did something. Other times in Scripture it says he marveled. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And that marvels that same sense of the sublime. Today we're going to learn, we're going to read a story that is, I guarantee is so familiar with you you can't believe it. But I believe this story is one of those moments where I think God was so excited. That's why the title of this is The Sublime Appeal of Simple Faith. The word sublime means of such excellence, grandeur, and beauty that it just draws you in. And I believe the action we're going to see from a 12-year-old little girl was of such immense beauty that God loved it. It's about Mary. It's about when the angel came to her and told her she's going to bear the Son of God. And her response, I think, was so overwhelmingly beautiful. You can't just, you can't describe it. If you can, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 to 38. title is The Sublime Appeal of Simple Faith. Verse 26. In the sixth month, and it says sixth month because we just learned about Elizabeth who was found to be with John the Baptist. She's pregnant with John the Baptist, so this is six months later after that Announcement to Zechariah. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing... Nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The story starts in verse 26 with Gabriel the angel being sent. Everything in biblical narrative that begins with Gabriel being sent means something big is about to happen. Gabriel was sent to Daniel when Daniel was told that the slavery was going to be over. And actually, Daniel was given a vision of what the end of the world is going to be like. And Gabriel was sent to do that. Last week, Gabriel was sent to Zechariah to announce John the Baptist. Now we have Gabriel being sent to a little girl named Mary. Some people have some questions about, I was talking last week, I said, Gabriel's an archangel, and some people are asking, came up to me and said, when you say archangel, what do you mean by that? Well, theologians, they, they, they aren't exactly sure, but what they believe, when you talk about the angelic realm, they believe the angelic realm has rankings, like military rankings, where our military has general down the colonel, down the captain, down the corporal, down the private, all the way at the bottom. There's this ranking system. In the heavenly realm, you have archangel, which is on the top, and you got seraphim and cherubim and then your regular old angels. In fact, Gabriel would be the archangel of messages. He is sent to bear amazing news. Michael, however, is the archangel of warfare. So when Gabriel's sent, big things are happening. God's going to his top dog angel. I often, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, could you imagine... If it was like a military, angelic military, you can just they're, just imagine they're in the barracks and some of the angels, the lowly angels, are playing rook. They have nothing else to do, so they're playing rook. They don't use face cards, so they're playing rook. And while they're playing rook, all of a sudden, the door opens and it's from headquarters. You can, I'll bet you angels kind of have southern. If they're in the military, usually military guys talk like that. Hey, did you see that? Gabriel's being sent on down. Something big happening. Where do you think he's going? Oh, he's probably being sent to Jerusalem or Rome. That's something to say to the Caesar down there. Another angel pipes in. Well, I saw the dispatch. He's being sent. Did you get this? He's being sent to Nazareth. What in the world? Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nazareth, yeah, but it, it, it's kind of stranger. He's got he's to go deliver a message to a 12-year-old girl who's living in the home of her dad. Man, that's mighty strange. Why would God send Gabriel down there? And then one of the higher angels says, well, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? Don't you know? God loves little people. One commentator writes, Luke wants his reader to see God as a God who is concerned with individual people, not just involved in great movements of nations and peoples, but he primarily operates in the lives of humble men and women. And you don't get any more humble than a 12-year-old girl living at home in Nazareth. This is called divine descent. 
almighty God is going down to society's lowest. A 12-year-old girl, betrothed, not owned yet, society's lowest. Why was Gabriel sent to Mary? Well, a lot of people these days have some confusion about Mary. Maybe he was sent to Mary because she is so special. She's above most of us. She's better than most of us. This is what I would call the puzzle of the virgin. Whenever the subject Mary comes up, there's this whole discussion about her virginity. The virgin Mary, is she ever a virgin? In verse 27, we said Gabriel sent, it says in here, Gabriel sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So they used the word virgin twice. And Luke is doing it very specifically because in Isaiah, 700 years before this book was written, there's a prophecy. God is going to send a sign through the virgin. She's going to be with child. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean Mary's a virgin? There's three camps. Actually, I'll say the first camp, I call them the enlightened rationalist. Those are the people that believe any miracle in the Bible is kind of crazy. It's far-fetched. It's more myth, superstition. So virgin really just means a young woman, a maiden, still living under the roof of her father. We don't need to read the miraculous into this. So when it says a virgin in the book of Isaiah, it just means a young girl who gets married, and then after her first time she sleeps with a man, she has a baby. That's all it means. Nothing fancy. That's the camp of the enlightened rationalist. Second camp is the traditional biblicist. A traditional or orthodox believer will say virgin in this context means a girl who's never slept with a man sexually. And she conceives. So it is miraculous. Then you have a third group of people that are called the Roman Catholic mystics. Those are the people that embrace mystery and specifically they embrace a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. This is a very confusing doctrine. Actually, it was codified by Pope Pius IX in 1834 with a papal bull. That means an executive order. But what he said and what really the church has Roman Catholic Church has commonly accepted that Mary is ever virgin. That means she was conceived in her mother's womb without sin. That's what immaculate conception means. It's not about Jesus being born. That's called the incarnation. Immaculate conception is that Mary, when she was born in Anna's womb, that's her mom, she was without sin. So she was born without sin and she continues to dwell in heaven without sin. She's ever virgin. That's the Roman Catholic mystic's position. I've always kind of wondered about that, because where did that come from? You don't read that. Well, they, they have, it's basically executive orders from on top of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. They, it's called the magisterium. They make these statements. So which one is true? I believe it's the second group. And I'll give you through proofs of what I think is the biblical perspective's right. First of all, the word virgin does mean a young maiden. And it says here, who's still betrothed. So she still is under her dad's house. That's true. However, I do also believe that it is a miracle that she is conceiving a baby. Based on three things. First of all, Mary's statement, verse 34. Look how she understands the word virgin. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I am still a virgin. That word virgin in the original is different than the other one. That word means I, did, 
I did not know a man. That's ancient language. I've never slept with any man. So she herself, in her confusion to this angel's appearance, she understands it meaning, I am going to have a baby, but I haven't been with a man yet. So that's her, that's her statement. Secondly, I believe first century Judaism wouldn't allow her to be with a man before she's married. Listen to this. This kind of blows me away when you think of this kind of tradition. According to contemporary Roman law, the minimum age of marriage for girls was 12 years old. For boys, it was 14. Can you imagine that? That's young. The minimum age for betrothal, which was first set by Roman law, which also Jewish practices adopted, was you could begin betrothal at 10 years old. All betrothal was was an agreement. It was an agreement between the groom and the daughter's dad. Usually, though, however, the marriage itself took place about 12 and a half years old. This was advantageous for her husband, who received the benefits of her service over a longer period of time, meaning she'd be able to take care of his home at a younger age and have her longer. That's why marriage was so young. But also, the writer says, practically speaking, for the dad, it was more easily to guarantee his daughter's purity if he could arrange for her to be married by the time she reached puberty. So she would have not have temptation when she gets of age. Consequently, a deed of betrothal and the bride price were exchanged at betrothal, after which bride and groom were legally joined and could be separated only by death or divorce. During this betrothal period, the daughter remained in her father's house under his control. The marriage ultimately was marked by intercourse between the betrothed couple to make an actual marriage. Thus, and this writer says, betrothal is not like our engagement. It has nothing to do with it. It's really a contractual relationship of property exchange. Kind of strange. Very young. Extremely young. The third thing I would say, the reason why I believe this definition of virgin is the third reason, because according to Mosaic law, and it said Mary was righteous, her family was righteous, if a betrothed lady, according to Deuteronomy 22 and 23, slept with a man, they both should be stoned. So in my mind, Mary wasn't ever virgin. She was a normal girl that God overshadowed to have a baby. Well, some people say, but yeah, what about the prayer? Hail Mary, full of praise. What about the Ave Maria? That Mary is the one we can pray to, and she's full of the grace of God. Well, if you look, if you go to Luke 1, this is where they get this. In verse 20, 28, it says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And it says that again in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. This word favor is charis in the Greek. That's grace. It means grace. There's only one person who's full of grace. God. He is infinite in capacity, and he's infinitely full of grace. Mary is a creature who has to be given grace. That's the whole point of grace. Grace is a gift that's bestowed upon somebody who doesn't deserve it, where it's unmerited, and it's a sheer gift from God. Mary in herself was not full of grace. She's a human being that needed a Savior just like you and me. 
Grace itself is a gift from the person who's full of grace, who's God himself, the infinite Holy One. The beauty about grace is grace takes this fallen race, and the point of grace is to pull us up and make us righteous, that which we cannot do on our own. So the next thing is this is a story of how God is going to rise up humans, rise up humanity, and he goes to Mary to be the point person on his new plan, his new agenda. He's going to use a 12-year-old girl, the lowest of the lows, to raise humanity up. I just want to make a side point. If you don't think Christianity is pro-woman, you're crazy. This is the most honorable thing anybody's ever been given. They get to carry God in their womb. That is an amazing gift to give to a woman. Christianity is a wonderful woman-uplifting faith. Actually, somebody this week said, did you see that uh, story about how that Muslim cleric was teaching Islam how to properly beat their wives? It's ridiculous. Christianity doesn't teach that. They do just the opposite. Mary, the 12-year-old girl, gets to carry the Son of God. That's amazing. By reaching the lowest of the low, he's able to pull all of us up. And how does he do it? I want you to go to Romans 5. Watch how he does it. Romans 5 explains how God raises humanity up. Romans 5, verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And what he's saying in verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, meaning because Adam sinned, it came to all of us. And with that sin, all men are condemned. That's what verse 16 says. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Condemnation means we are not in a position of favor with God. But, verse 15 says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what has happened through one man, Adam, sin came, but through the second Adam, Jesus, all have the opportunity to be raised up in favor. And it says, really this whole idea in verse 15, where it says what Jesus did abounded to many. The idea, the way I like to look at it, Adam's sin was the match that lit all of the forest of humanity on fire. Jesus' death was the water that put it all out. Just think how much more water he had to pour on the one small match that was lit. God's grace is so much greater than man's sin. So who was this man? Let's go back to Luke 1. Who is the second Adam? Luke 1.31 gives us his name. And you'll see why he's given that name. Luke 1.31 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah saves. God 
saved. So as man sinned, Jesus has come along because he's going to deliver all men out of condemnation. That's what his name meant. So if I would sum this up, what I've been saying, say, so let me get this straight. God wants to rescue all men from condemnation, yes. And the only way to do this is by sending his son, and he decides to send his son in the form of a baby that is placed in the womb of a 12-year-old penniless girl. That's the story? Yeah. Man, there's a lot. That's a lot. Wait, let's, so let's consider this a second. There's, there's two, this is outrageous on two levels. It's outrageous, honestly. On the first level, who in their right mind would entrust the fate of the world with a 12-year-old penniless girl? Okay, imagine going to, sorry, Jasmine, going to my daughter who's 12 years old to say, Jasmine, you are responsible for the salvation of the world. Are you ready? What? If, to me, personally, between you and me, God makes odd choices. He doesn't do it right. He just doesn't do it right. If it was up to me, I would send out resumes to all the rich women in the world. Definitely not third world women. I'd want to see their education level. I'd like to see the inheritance they get. I'd like to see the home they live in. Because Mary's home, it's a hovel on the side of a hill in Nazareth. You kidding? That's third world. That's what God shows. Why? I think for one reason. God enjoys doing the impossible so man cannot claim anything at all. If this is true with God's son, how about your life and your children? Can God do miracles with them? Absolutely. Can he do miracles with you? And you might say, but I have nothing to offer. Who am I? You have nothing to offer? Perfect. You're right in line with Mary. She was still underneath the home of her dad. Now, on the second level, this is outrageous. On Mary's side, could you imagine being Mary? Listen to what she's told in verses 31 to 33. Verse 31. Okay, Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and you're going to call him Jesus, which means God saves. So his name's going to be Jesus. Secondly, he'll be great. Well, how great will he be? Well, he's going to be the son of God, the most. <laughs> what? Yeah, in your womb, you're going to have God himself. What? And then it gets even better than that. And the Lord God will give to him. Do you remember David, that guy you learned about in Sunday school? Yeah, King David, who owns Jerusalem, and he's going to rule forever. Yeah. Well, the guy, the person that's going to be in your womb is going to be his son. He's going to be the one that's going to fulfill all the promises that were given to David. That's why it says he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, Mary. There'll be no end. So the, you're going to be, man, he's going to be the king of the universe and he's going to be your son. I was trying to wrap my mind around what Mary was thinking. I mean, you want to talk about stressed out. People in our day and age, especially women, get stressed out when three people are going to come over to their house. This is having the Son of God coming over to your house and live with you. I can imagine her going, how do I prepare to teach him? I am not a rabbi, a scribe, or a prophet. God, have you seen my house? You want your son to live in my house? I have dirt floors. And not only that, I'm living with my parents. Oh, no, my parents. What will they think of me? That I've been sleeping with Joseph. Oh, no, what about Joseph? What do I tell him? He's going to cast me out. He's probably going to have me stoned. And if this is God's son, 
I better be perfect. I better not say one bad thing or do one bad thing. What if him as an infant burps up on my sweater? I can't even get angry at him. He's God. How do I spank him? How can anyone be perfect? I'm bound to fail. God, why, do you, why don't you leave me alone? This is too much for me to bear. I don't want this God. Go find a better prepared, older, richer, wiser lady. I'm just a little girl. That's what we do all the time when God wants to use us to reach other people. Who am I? I can't do anything. I, just leave me alone. What did Mary say? Look at what Mary said in verse 34. It is utterly amazing. Mary said, how? How will this be? I'm a virgin. She didn't resist. She just wanted clarification. There's some scholars' debates. If you look in verse 18, in a way, after Zechariah got a message from Gabriel that he's going to have a baby, he said, how shall I know this? People are saying, seemed like the angel was mad at Zechariah, but he wasn't mad at Mary. What's the difference? And there's one very small but important difference. In Zechariah's question, actually you can put it like this. He wants to know, how can I be sure this is going to happen? He wanted a sign that he can believe God and put his trust in him. Mary just didn't understand it. She just wanted clarity. So you could say, Zechariah wanted a sign to be sure, but Mary just wanted clarity to be faithful. It's a vastly different request. So many people make demands on God before they'll even trust him. That's the Zechariah camp. They're demanding God to move towards them, to come and meet them at their level. I will not believe, God, unless you do something to prove yourself. Because you owe me, God. I'm not going to believe in you until you prove yourself. Mary didn't do that. Mary wanted to know how God would work through her. It didn't make sense to her. She wanted clarity. In a way, she was moving to God to get more enlightened. It's a big difference. So when Mary said how, the angel gave her the answer in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is called the incarnation. God comes upon Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit where she conceives a son that's 100% human and 100% God because the seed is the spirit. Now at this point, I just want to make a statement. Theologians call this moment when Mary conceives divine activity, called divine activity of God. In the same way, when you get saved, God gives his divine activity works in you where he gives you the seed of eternal life. However, we are now living in a culture where divine mystery, which this is, is starting to become, it's being termed with crassness. Comedians, especially feminist comedians, atheistic journalists, especially from the journal The Salon, they, what they do is they take this moment, this divine activity where Mary conceived, and they attribute violence from God upon Mary. They even use the R word, but they call God a misogynist, domineering misogynist. They turn a thing of beauty and a sublime beauty and reduce it to brutal barbarianism. And this word is called blasphemy. When you take something from God that is gorgeous and you bring it down in the mud and mire of our rotten mind, man, you're in trouble. 
Never take this moment and turn it into something crass. And people are doing it all the time, thinking it's the funniest thing to, to, to afford God the actions of a vile man. He's holy. He's the creator. And he loves us. So he overshadowed Mary to give us salvation. That's amazing to me. It really doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to Mary. So he gives her a little bit more insight. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, and is called barren. And then he says, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. He can, I know it doesn't make sense, but he can do it. And that's all Mary needed to know. And in her response, in her response, I believe she exampled for us the key to unlock God's impossible ability, his ability to overcome the impossible. I believe it is here at this moment that God was, wow, this little 12-year-old girl is a marvel. Because look how she responds. And Mary says in verse 38, behold, basically saying, okay, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's an act of simple faith. Simple faith. Simple faith is all God requires. I believe simple faith is what draws God to us. I think simple faith, faith makes him marvel at us. When you describe simple faith, it's described in her two statements. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. In other words, she's saying, I will do whatever you want. It's a statement that not just she's ready to obey, but it's a willingness, a readiness, an acceptance, a softness, a flexibleness, a humility to let God have his way. But the second thing she says is, let it be according to my word. In other words, simple is I will do, and faith is whatever your word says. Whatever means, no matter how far-fetched, how culturally antagonistic, mysterious, or impossible, improbable, insurmountable, impractical, preposterous, faith will still believe it. It's, a, it's simple faith. And I believe when we exercise that kind of faith, where when we read something, even we don't get it, we still obey it and do it. I believe that's what causes God to marvel. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, at this point, at this, simple, this statement, simple faith, it is where Christians often are seen as foolish, blind, and brainwashed. This isn't blind, especially in Mary's case, because she's given two evidences, two reasons to trust God. The first one is the angel Gabriel appeared. I mean, the angel Gabriel appeared. He's pretty, pretty powerful and intense. I was talking to Steve Turner last week, and he's relating to me this story about a missionary who was in a hostile country. And as he's praying, he looked up and he noticed some angels in the room. And he said, and the ceiling was pretty high, but for the angels to be in that room, they had to stoop like that. Imagine if we had four angels, but they had to stoop to stay in this room. I bet you Gabriel was like that. So here's Gabriel says she was, she was terrified. Zachariah is terrified. Why? Because they're terrified. The other evidence here is verse 37. You know your cousin Elizabeth? 
Remember how she was barren? She couldn't have a baby. It was old. She's on her sixth month. She's already showing. That would be like, what? Wow. God gives us, all of us, when he wants to cause us to believe him, he'll give us enough evidence to trust him, but not enough to understand completely. Do you know why we can't understand completely? Because the human mind can never understand completely the infinite mind of God. We always want to have exhaustive knowledge in order, if I don't have all the knowledge, I'm not going to believe. You'll never be able to believe because you'll never go to the depths of God's ability. That's what Romans 11 says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a rhetorical question saying, who has taught God anything? Who really knows how much God does? So in the face of the reality of God's brilliance and ability to do the impossible, Mary said, okay, whatever you want. Then that's all God asks of us. Look how Elizabeth, go to uh, verse 45 of chapter 1. Watch how Elizabeth she affirms this simple faith. And she uses the word blessed. Remember the prayer, if you're a Roman Catholic, blessed are you among women. Why is she blessed? Elizabeth tells us in verse 45, blessed is she, blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is he who had simple faith. The door to the impossible has been opened because of simple faith. So she receives blessing. In the same way, so do you. You have just as much access to blessing as Mary did. We, we exalt her. Like she has this special quantity of it. No, she's a person. But so are you. And blessed are you who believe what the Lord has said. Or, or, and this is a very important question. Are you too intelligent to have faith? Are you too intelligent? Like I just, you know, I'm too smart to believe this nonsense. I find that we're living in a day and age where people tend to fall more on Zachariah's camp than Mary's camp. They want God to give them personal signs before they believe. They want exhaustive reasons. They want answers so when they finally do believe, they aren't seen as a fool. Because I'm so smart, I know all this stuff. I know how the, the cosmos can't be made in six to 10,000 years. I'm smarter than that. I've read the scientific journals. Smarter than that. I came to this realization just really where we are as a culture when I was in Russia. I spent a whole year with this guy named Stas trying to convince him, and trying to answer his questions. He is a philosophy major. He'd always ask me questions. And then at the end of the year, I said, so what are you going to do about Jesus? He goes, ah, you know what? It's compelling, but I like to keep my options open. That's it. We want to keep our options open. Faith asks you to throw your lot in with something. And nobody wants to go fully in. Keep my options open. My daughter has a professor in college right now that says, philosophy professor and he said you know 
I believe there's some kind of entity, some kind of God, but I don't like the Christian's God because the Christians argue too much and they don't know anything. But I'm not a full atheist either because there's too much wonder in the world. So I'm just going to remain this enlightened agnostic. I'm not going to make a choice. That's where I think most people are. That's why people won't believe. They're just too smart. I remember one more thing. I remembered three things, but I have one more memory. I'll never forget. A week before I was married. I'll never forget it. It was about a day before. I was, I was living in Cleveland. I was going to drive up to Grand Rapids because I was getting married in Grand Rapids. But my last night in Cleveland, I'll never forget it because I remember I was in bed by myself saying, this is the last time I'll be alone in bed. My bed. It's kind of scary. I remember thinking, man, if I get married, I'm going to have to give everything of myself. Do I really want to do that? But then I also knew, I am sure I want to give everything to this one person with brown hair and brown eyes. All of it. Because I'm sure she's God's will for me. I'll tell you what. The day I said I do, I am telling you, I didn't know her like I know her now. But to know her as I know her now, I had to make some kind of commitment based on the evidence I already received. I didn't have exhaust. I didn't, I didn't even know what, I didn't know her at all. But I knew that she was the one God brought for me. Faith is identical to that. God will lead you down to where you know he is the truth. You know it, but you really don't know him. But to know him, you've got to commit to him by faith. And then once you know him by faith, what starts happening are moments of the sublime. You can't explain it. You can experience it, but you can't explain it to somebody who never has really given their life to Christ. He's amazing. He's beautiful. He's sublime in his brilliance and excellence. But if you want to experience it, you've got to give yourself to him by faith, simple faith. Or are you just too intelligent? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Mary's example. We thank you for her humility and her willingness, God, to be used by you. I thank you for Mary because I'm saved because of her willingness to let Jesus to be born in her home. I pray for us, God, that when you speak to us, speak to us through your word or through impressions, and you, we know it's you talking, I pray that, God, we would have simple faith and exercise it. I pray it would be the kind of faith that causes you to marvel. Lord, we love you. We really do. We are... Um, grateful for all that you've done. We pray all these things in Christ's name.